Hope you're enjoying your lunch. As always, we need to interrupt your lunch and get our speakers started because uh, we have a lot to cover in a great panel. My name is Rick Page, and I'm the uh, current president of the chapter, and my job is to welcome you. And at the same time, to ask you to check out the uh, sponsors that are rotating on the screen up here. We want to thank them because without the sponsors, uh, much of what we uh, do here in the chapter, which is two to three, sometimes four events a month, really couldn't happen. And so please, uh, please pay attention to our sponsors. We have a number of upcoming events that I'd like to make you aware of, and then we'll feature um, a little more information about next month's events, which is kind of a special and always a, a very hot topic. Coming up on October 22nd, our Emerging Leaders Group is inviting all of us to participate in a speed networking event. Now, this ought to be a lot of fun. Uh, we've actually brought, we're actually going to be bringing in a speed networking uh, group to help us conduct this. Um, and uh, John Wickman over there is holding up the thing that was on your chair. And on your chair is the information about that event. I think this could be a lot of fun. Uh, John, am I right? All right. And John and his committee have been working hard on this, and I hope you will join in because the young folks in our group want to meet the uh, more experienced folks, and, uh, and likewise. So it's a great opportunity for us to very quickly uh, meet a lot of folks and get the uh, chapter mingling. Also coming up uh, in December, on December 2nd, is our holiday party. Please mark your calendar. All of that information is getting posted on the website. On December 4th, we're bringing back our uh, second suburban breakfast event, and will be the, um, I believe it's going to be the second half of our discussion on the impact of fuel costs, this time on uh, commuting and employee demographics in the office environment as opposed to the industrial. Um, RJ is going to take us in, in through a little bit of discussion about what's going to happen in November in our panel there and a special opportunity we have for participants in that. And RJ, if you'll bring up uh, Dan and the... Hey, you haven't seen me in a while, huh? Uh, thought, thought I was gone. Uh, I'm, I got the pleasure of uh, working with the, uh, the program committee on the uh, November event. Uh, we, uh, we always have a very special, uh, special time there with, uh, this will be 2008, a year in retrospective. We always bring in some, uh, some great speakers, always have some great uh, back and forth at the table. And this is going to be uh, yet another year that's going to be uh, just as interesting. This is the fourth one, and this one is going to be particularly, particularly interesting because of the economic conditions that we currently have, in addition to the fact that it's three days after the uh, presidential election. And who knows, by that time we might actually have elected a president. Uh, the, the moderator, uh, the, the, the moderator uh, will be uh, uh, talking about the uh, e economics for the year. Uh, we're going to be having uh, Jack Derberg, Executive Managing Director for uh, C.B. Richard Ellis, and Dan Ryan, Managing Director of Midwest Operations for Jones Lang LaSalle of Americas, both responsible for the Midwest regions of uh, two of the arguably largest uh, real estate service providing organizations in the world. We will be having a developer, and we'll be having a corporate end user. And I believe that you will see uh, a dramatic uh, difference in perspective on what's going on and what the impacts have been to them for this year uh, and moving forward. So <clears throat> like we have in the past, uh, we've, we've really uh, tried to elevate uh, uh, attention to the uh, education patron uh, table ship, uh, sponsorships that are available. Steelcase and corporate concepts uh, have been particularly uh, I'm sorry, office concepts, my bad. Strike that first word. Uh, Steelcase and office concepts have been particularly good in uh, participating in that, and we, we look to have another 15 or, or, or more uh, table sponsorships uh, for that event. So, Dan, you want to uh, t tell us about today? You all will be getting calls from a number of people regarding those, those table sponsorships. And no, RJ, nobody thought that you were gone. Everybody can see you. <laughs> uh, my name is Dan Albrick. I'm on the uh, Programs Committee co-chair along with Jeanette Outlaw. Put these lovely programs together on a monthly basis. And um, pleased to announce today's topic, which is Power Serve, Serving Up Solutions in a Changing Market. 
And uh, moderating for us today is Francisco Acoba, Senior Manager, Strategy and Operations for Deloitte Consulting. Also with him will be Christy Farley from NKF Consulting and Noah Shales with Grubbin Ellis. Um, Francisco is a Senior Manager in Deloitte Consulting Strategy and Operations Practice. Has over 11 years of experience providing management consulting services to corporate real estate organizations within Fortune 500 companies, many of the world's largest public sector entities. His work focused on development of strategies that allow companies, real estate, and facilities to be considered a value-added component of business process as opposed to simply a cost structure. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the, the panelists and our moderator, Francisco, and he can announce the rest of our group. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Okay. All right, great. Um, so just before we introduce the uh, two panelists today, I just want to give you a quick overview of the topics we'll be covering today. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, real estate uh, service delivery solutions uh, and how they've evolved over the years. Um, we're going to talk a little about, about the concept of integrated uh, resource and infrastructure solutions, so the, uh, the IRIS concept that some of you may have heard floating around Cornet over the last few years. Uh, we're going to talk about the drivers uh, for outsourcing um, and addressing the need for uh, increased levels of innovation, flexibility, um, and uh, quality and service from the service providers. Um, and lastly, we'll talk a little bit about uh, measuring success uh, and uh, structuring of incentives uh, for your providers to, do so, to, to succeed. Um, so we have today, we have our two um, panelists, if we can, if this is working. Maybe not. Try that again, okay. Um, so we have two panelists today. We have first uh, Christy Farley uh, from <coughs> uh, Newmark, who has joined us today. Um, Christy has 17 years of experience in a variety of different areas relative to real estate around portfolio and operational strategies, workplace strategies, business process improvement, program management, and design and project management. Uh, she is part of the leadership team within uh, Newmark's consulting group and is uh, focused on the execution and delivery of services related to business process analysis, cost containment, and reporting. Uh, she's also spent time at uh, Equus and at IA. Um, she has a Bachelor of Fine Applied Arts Sciences in Interior Design from Rochester Institute of Technology, and she is currently getting her master's degree in real estate from NYU. Um, so, Christy, if you could join us. Uh, and then we also have... We also have uh, Noah Schles uh, from Grabenels today. Uh, Noah has 25 years of experience in the real estate market. Uh, he's advised international banks utilities, manufacturing companies, railroads, universities, and governments in a variety of real estate matters. Uh, he is with Grubbenall since 2004. Previous to that, 14 years at uh, Arthur Anderson uh, with the uh, corporate real estate consulting practice. Uh, and he is a third generation, as he tells me, real estate consultant. So uh, advice from over the years. So Noah, if you could please join us as well. And um, before we, um, we're going to do a quick, uh, maybe 20-minute presentation, just provide some context. Um, maybe what we could do, actually, just before that, just for background, uh, Noah, if you could tell the group a little bit about what you guys do. Um, sure. So they have that context, and Chris, do the same. Sure. Uh, I lead the strategic consulting practice within Grubb & Ellis, which is a Chicago-based practice that serves the entire United States and uh, occasionally the rest of the world, especially inbound. Uh, the work breaks down into three major components, one piece of it being pure consulting directly to outside clients. Uh, we're particularly proud of our redesign of the real estate department of the city of San Diego last year. Uh, a second component involves location selective, uh, selection and incentive negotiation in conjunction with, uh, with transactions. We're really enhancing a transactions process and providing a, a bigger slice of service. But the third piece, and the one we're probably going to talk most about today, is as part of our strategic accounts 
uh, focus where we engage in master client relationships or master client agreements to handle all of the corporate real estate or a piece uh, among others, as we'll see later today, uh, for a Fortune 500 company. And we'll typically be in there at the beginning helping design the overall strategy and then coming in and out as the process continues. Um, my, I'm in a leadership position in the consulting organization with the Newmark Knight Frank. Um, many of you may not have heard too much about Newmark Knight Frank nationally and globally because they're typically known as a New York-centric real estate firm. About five years ago, our CEO made the investment into the consulting and project management group and has grown it from about 10, 15 people five years back to about a 100-person organization. So what that means is we are an integrated uh, platform to deliver uh, enterprise-wide solutions strategy to implementation and that focuses on not just um, workplace strategies, portfolio optimization, um, outsource solutions. It also focuses on supply chain network and supply chain distribution as well as um, being a very integrated part of our transaction management advisory team. So all of our methodology that we've developed uh, resides with a combined effort and it's not just consulting, it's actually the whole team. All right, so we have two service providers here on our panel today. How many service providers do we have in the uh, in the audience? Okay, good handful. And uh, end users? Okay. All right, well, uh, we definitely encourage you to uh, ask questions or provide comments, feedback based on your experience as well. Um, and as we go through the next uh, few slides around um, background, um, please feel free to, to jump in. Uh, the more interactive we can make this, the better. Okay, so uh, I guess taking a little bit of a stroll down the uh, history around s service delivery. Um, if you go back to the 1960s, um, this is really when the genesis of corporate real estate as a corporate function uh, began to uh, to uh, present itself. Um, it was a new function. Um, you know, they were beginning to pull together various uh, parts and pieces from other uh, varied uh, parts of the organization. They're centralizing the, uh, the capability of corporate real estate. Um, there was some out-tasking, so certainly no uh, comprehensive outsourcing as we see today, but more out-tasking of specific jobs or projects. Um, but it was, again, on, lim on a limited basis. Um, that model actually continued for, for quite a while, uh, really through the 60s and 70s, um, you know, we went into the 80s and we began to see much larger corporate real estate organizations, um, really the CRE does it all type concept where you did everything from design to implementation in a, using in-house staff. Um, for some specialties, there was still some out-tasking uh, to vendors, but again, it was out-tasking, not outsourcing, uh, so very, very uh, focused. Um, into the early 90s, uh, you began to see downsizing uh, across corporate real estate organizations and across really corporate America in general. Um, there was a push to uh, take more external resources and leverage their, their capabilities and get those uh, resources off the internal roles. Um, so you saw lots of vendors, a smaller or shrinking corporate real estate department. Um, but the vendors were typically, um, there wasn't a structured relationship. There were lots of different vendors. Um, it certainly wasn't uh, an easy uh, situation to manage. Um, and, and as you see these, these, uh, these sort of vignettes around the history, it's not to say that every real estate organization was operating in this model at that point in time, but it's to, it's to show the model that began to emerge or present itself um, at that point in time. So in the mid-1990s, you began to see, again, continued downsizing, but then you saw what or began to be referred to as preferred vendor relationships, where um, some of the previously many vendors um, were then consolidated to a more limited number of preferred vendors. Part of that was really just to simplify the relationship and the management structure, um, and obviously there were some benefits to that. Um, as you get into the late 90s and the early 2000s, you begin to see more and more... Um, uh, complexity or sophistication in the way some of these models were, were organized. So in the late 90s, you saw the, the alliance partner model, as it's known, um, where you had tier one and tier two vendors, 
You might have an alliance partner that was responsible for a certain geography or region, um, or, and then they had their own tier two vendors that they used to deliver specific um, services. And there may have been two, three alliance partners depending on the geography that your company had to deal with. Um, that model, uh, which was, um, again, late 90, 1990s, uh, Nortel is a famous one that moved into this model at that point in time. Uh, and then in, towards the early 2000s moved into something that you see here, more of a strategic partner model where the actual outsourced partners were asked to team and work together um, for collective success or failure. Uh, and they were incented to do so. Um, and they managed a large group of vendors uh, on a global basis. So you still had your tier one and tier two structure, uh, but you had different incentives around the service, the strategic partner um, uh, relationship. Um, when you go into the mid-2000s, we've all seen lots of companies try to move towards, and I'll say try uh, uh, in, in, uh, in quotes because some have gotten there, some haven't, um, to a single strategic partner relationship on a global basis. Um, and something we could talk about today, the, uh, the, the benefits uh, or even, um, uh, you know, if it's realistic to have a single strategic partner globally, uh, you'll probably have lots of different opinions on that. Um, but uh, companies have been trying to move down that route in real estate simply because in other uh, shared services administrative functions, um, companies have moved down that route. And there's a push to do that across all all procured or, le or leveraged services. Uh, a model that has come to, to, um, to present itself in the late 2000s here is one known as multi-sourcing, which uh, is sort of a hybrid in the sense that um, the strategic partner relationship now, uh, they're played off one of uh, each other. So instead of a strategic partner having a defined region um, and having all work in that region, um, you may have two strategic partners that have to compete uh, for the work in that region. So it adds another level of competition uh, and potentially the, the, uh, the idea is, um, you know, potential additional benefits to the comp corporation um, from, for, from that competition. Um, you know, where is this going to go in the future? I think that we still see hybrids of all of these models out there. There are still some companies that are going to be operating in, the, in that, you know, early 1990s um, CRE with lots of different vendor model, uh, and that's perfectly fine. If it works for them, it works. That's great. Um, other companies need a different level of sophistication or, or, or attention to their, um, to their portfolio, so they, they look for a different type of model to serve their needs. Um, the one thing that I think we've realized, and Forrester has put out some research on this recently, um, single sourcing is not necessarily price effective. Um, over years, vendors do become complacent. Uh, it's been it's been proved out, um, and um, that's a challenge that corporations have to manage, and certainly a perception that the vendors have to manage on their end. Um, and how how do they manage that um, that issue? Um, so all of these models, um, I think one of the things that, that we've seen is that uh, there's a need for improved governance um, and uh, and leadership from the corporates to help make the process work. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today with the IRIS model. Um, so one thing that we've seen in all these models, you've seen a shrinking CRE, right? It's not growing, it's certainly compressing, uh, condensing down to some core capabilities. Um, and you have to ask, what should CRE really be focused on? Um, there's so many things that have to happen any day with regards to corporate real estate facilities management. Um, if you're not careful, you can definitely get sucked into the wrong activities, and before you know it, um, all your time is spent at the bottom end of this uh, pyramid uh, on the very transactional or commodity-type services as opposed to strategic services or strategic uh, planning and thinking that the corporation is really looking for from, from corporate real estate executives and leaders. Um, if you look today and hear the top triangle around strategy and the customer relationship management piece below that, um, a lot of companies will spend only you know, 5 15%, so 20% of their time on those types of activities. Uh, and 80% of their resources are spent on doing everything below that. Okay? And the reality is, look on the right-hand side, the value-add proposition is really flipped. 
Um, so the real place you get your value from is from the areas on the top of the pyramid. So it's the strategy, it's the CRM, it's a planning analysis, it's a risk management. Uh, these are the things that the internal corporate real estate organizations and their, those limited number of staff will likely be focused on going forward. Um, now, there is, don't get me wrong, there is a strategic component to each and every one of the activities on that pyramid. So even though we're looking at move execution or transactions or market intelligence at, the, at, that, at that bottom rung, there's a strategic piece to that and there's a tactical execution piece to that. Um, the strategic piece still would be considered something that needs to be handled um, you know, internally uh, or at least by that core uh, corporate real estate group. Um, and this, I think, plays out pretty well, what you see in the marketplace. Uh, this is a recent survey that was done, um, actually, by, by Deloitte in conjunction with, uh, with Cornet Global. Um, and you'll see that the dark blue bars here that start on the left um, show what work is done in-house. Um, and this is a survey of 59 uh, senior corporate real estate leaders. So uh, the survey only went out to the most senior corporate real estate executive at any, any specific corporation and it's all end users. Um, you'll see that strategic planning, portfolio management, um, these things are, are done primarily in-house. Um, and as you see, go to the, to the right, you'll see the yellow bars. Uh, these are things that are outsourced through strategic partner relationships, uh, and everything in the middle is somewhere in between, right? So it's outtasked or it's outsourced um, at different levels of formality. Um, but what we're seeing is definitely that shift towards, you know, those strategic high-value activities are being more and more kept in-house, and other things like construction management, facilities management, project management being outsourced to to the vendor community. Um, you know, one of the things you hear a lot about is the issue around uh, what's the driver for outsourcing, um, and you can see here the two two-colored uh, columns. The uh, burgundy column is for end users. The yellow is for, for service providers. Uh, the most important driver or the key driver for the end users is uh, a focus on core competencies um, and then, of course, increasing flexibility and adaptability. Um, when we, the service providers responded to this survey, the most important driver for them, from their perspective, was cost reduction. So there's a little bit of a, of, a, uh, of a disconnect there between what um, corporates are saying they're looking for and what's their driver and what the uh, end user of search product community, rather, is saying this is the key driver for, um, for the outsourcing. And the one that I think is really interesting to me, and we're going to talk about this with the panel, is around, in the middle there, increased level of innovation, where end users had that pretty high in the scale, and that's the lowest ranked um, driver from the service provider uh, community, which is interesting. So they don't feel that the, co the corporates are looking for innovation, but yet we hear that the corporates are very much so looking for innovation as part of their outsourced relationships. Um, so again, so, some disconnects. Um, so lots of, you, uh, lots of you have probably seen this uh, stair-step model in the past. There's lots of variations of this over, over time. Um, but the reality is for, as corporations continue to decrease the size of the corporate real estate function internally, um, you really need to begin moving up that ladder, up the stair step, um, to that business partner strategist role um, so that you can provide the strategic value the company is looking for um, and then, you know, again, outsource or find other ways to provide some of the more commodity-type services. Um, the thing is that to work in some of the models that we looked at earlier, so we went from the 1960s to the 2000s, some of those alliance partner relationships, strategic partner relationships, um, they require a certain level of sophistication and capability uh, by the corporates as well. So if you're operating, for example, just to go back here, if you're operating in this early 1990s model as a corporation, and that's the way you look at vendor relationships. It's going to be very difficult for you to set up a true alliance partnership or a strategic partnership uh, with vendors because there's going to be a disconnect in between, between expectations, 
uh, probably incentives. Um, uh, just overall, it's just not going to work because you have two competing uh, viewpoints uh, in how this should work. Um, so for some of these more complex and sophisticated models, which we've, you know, I think we've determined over time, the alliance relationships, the strategic partner relationships do add additional value uh, to the model, and they, they certainly have a, a cost reduction opportunity and additional benefits are brought to the, to the table the corporates have to uh, operate in a certain way as well. Um, so it's a, it's a two-way street. Uh, and again, with the IRIS model, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. Um, the thing is that today, each of these corporate functions is, is doing this and is working on their, own, on, their own, um, on their own effort, right? They're working on their own model independently. Um, so corporate real estate is doing that, IT is doing that, finance is doing that. Uh, they're not necessarily working together or leveraging across uh, the different capabilities. Um, and there is uh, a value proposition for working together with, specifically from a real estate standpoint, HR, IT, and finance um, to, uh, to improve the overall, overall product. Uh, and that's really the, the concept of, of IRIS and where that comes from. So uh, this is not meant to say that a corporate real estate or infrastructure leader is going to be leading the HR function or, or is going to be leading the IT function for a corporation. But there are pieces of the HR function um, capability set, for example, workplace policies uh, and other related programs that are very much tied to real estate. Um, and there's an opportunity there for HR and real estate to work together to partner uh, on those types of, of uh, efforts. Same thing goes with information technology. Uh, it's all about mobility today, and um, you know, real estate would find it very hard to deliver the products it delivers from a workplace standpoint without an effective relationship with IT. Um, you know, so for whether it's um, all the different tools, technologies for connectivity, um, or even just in, in the infrastructure in the workplace itself, um, all that needs to be aligned. So. Having these three groups, HR, IT, and CRE, working together in a common financial framework, so there are integrated budgets, viewpoints, and basically approaches to delivery of, of the workplace and infrastructure solutions, um, that's the concept of IRIS. Uh, some organizations have begun to go down that, down that line. Um, I think that IT and real estate have probably become more aligned than, than HR and real estate in some cases. Um, but it's certainly a, a, an emerging concept uh, that we're seeing more and more in the marketplace. Um, you know, part of this is the continued effort towards central centralization. Real estate is becoming more centralized. Uh, even the facilities functions within certain industries and companies are beginning to become centralized with real estate. So you have real estate and facilities together. Um, the vision for the future here, as you can see, pushing 75% uh, of companies surveyed in this, uh, in this one um, uh, real estate executive board uh, research piece, they're saying that they're going to be primarily or fully centralized um, in, in the near future. Um, part of that same research from Reeb shows increased alignment with IT and with HR. Um, so, you know, those models are definitely coming together, um, and we're beginning to see that more and more. Whether that means that HR and real estate report to the same executive member or, you know, CFO, uh, C CHRO or whoever it might be, um, or whether they're just working together and they have a relationship, um, you know, working relationship, uh, different levels of, you know, implementation, but we're definitely seeing more about that uh, in the marketplace. Um, this actually is, again, the, going back to that recent survey that was conducted, 40% um, of respondents in this, about 60 people who responded to the survey saying that they collaborate routinely with HR, IT, and finance, uh, that real estate does. Um, and that's either through embedded staff or dotted line relationships. So you know, we're beginning to see not only people working together, but actually having formal relationship structures, and the, the organization is being set up so that these people can work together more effectively uh, and, and more easily. Um, one of the questions that was asked around this IRIS concept was, um, will the fact that corporations are beginning to align around this IRIS model impact the way 
service providers respond uh, and provide services. Um, and out of about 300 people who responded to this survey, uh, there was pretty strong agreement that service providers are going to need to change the way they respond and potentially change the service set that they deliver um, to align with the, uh, the IRIS concept. And I know it says by 2010, but um, it's 2008, and I think that we're probably, probably still about five years away from that, but, uh, but, we're, but we're getting there. Um, so around the delivery roles, I think that this is just a, a, just a quick model to show. Um, there will be some level of what we call a solutions integrator, um, and if we think about that solutions integrator for real estate or a service integrator even for real estate, um, some type of company, uh, whether it's a real estate company, a real estate services company, or it's another type of um, uh, provider, you know, others like you have know, said EDS and IBM are going to get into this game as well because they have lots of capital and, and they can play that integrator role uh, very easily. Um, but somebody is going to come in as an integrator and pull together the various services. So if you're delivering a workplace, uh, it's not just about the, the physical space anymore. It's about the IT, uh, the infrastructure, and the mobility components. It's about um, helping the company establish workplace policies and programs because they, in many cases, that expertise doesn't lie within most corporations today that are acting in a very traditional manner. Um, so the question is who is going to be in that role? I mean, that's still, I think, an open-ended open, open item. Uh, we're not really sure. Um, we are seeing some... Uh, uh, REITs that are beginning to go into the uh, to the real estate and IT world, so they're delivering your space, but they're also delivering your infrastructure, and whether that could be as, something as basic as your uh, your you know your wires and your wireless, or more, um, it depends. But we're definitely seeing that uh, in Europe specifically. Um, Land Trillium has gone down that route, and some of the providers in the U.S. are doing that as well. Um, so time will tell. We'll see what happens, but. Companies are definitely looking for more of an integrated, integrated approach um, to the delivery of, of the workplace. Um, the, the different types of relationships that are going to have to be formed to make this work, I think, are interesting. Um, if you look at the cat uh, and, and in category three, just to define that a service provider down here, um, that could be any one of the uh, point services or specific services that you need to deliver a, uh, a facility. So it could be anything from the architect to, um, to, to the furniture, to the technology piece, to the, uh, the brokerage and the transaction angle, to strategic planning. These are all distinct components or capabilities that are acquired. Um, the integrator is the one that will pull all this together. Um, the integrator may provide some of those capabilities, um, or in other cases they'll go out to the marketplace to procure them and bring them together in one whole collective set to deliver to their to their customers. Um, so the level of relationship and the and the roles, the characteristics of the roles changes. Um, if you are a, for example, when we talk about formalization of relationship, the second uh, arrow in from the left. If you're a category three provider, if you are a um, a furniture vendor, for example, um, formal formalization formalization, excuse me, of relationship. Uh, is going to be very high, um, as opposed to if you're an integrator. Um, if you're talking about uh, time horizon and you're the furniture vendor, you're talking about a short-term time horizon versus a long-term time horizon. And I guess the difference there is if you are an uh, integrator and you're going to set up a, a contract for real estate solution delivery for Corporation X, um, you're going to be having to invest capital, time, relationships, etc. It's going to take a lot of effort on your part to be properly placed within um, that corporation as a trusted advisor. So the time horizon is long because you're going to be looking for a long relationship, five, ten years, to be able to build something and recoup your investment. Um, whereas the furniture vendor at the, at the other end of the spectrum may be looking for more of a short-term relationship in this model because they want flexibility to work with ten different integrators. Right, so um, under this model, I think it changes the the relationship structure uh, from from some of the things that we see today. So it'll be interesting to see um, to what extent this comes to fruition.
and this is just a quick depiction of of an integrator um, working with various service providers and delivering uh, integrated solution to the company. Um, but so as we, as we wrap up on this, just a couple of key points. Um, so the, today, the vendor marketplace is still very diverse. It's very fragmented. Should come to no surprise to, to all of us. There's a large number of players out there, and, and m seems to be more coming every day. Um, however, the large leading players are going global. Um, although they, I would say, and I look to people to provide feedback, but really, there's there's no undisputed leader today, um, or one one company that says they can deliver all of that seamlessly. Um, vendors range from, again, your small localized facilities companies to the large global firms. Um, some of the small vendors are facing issues around global support. Can they support a global relationship if you're a small company? We were talking about an, an example recently uh, in, in the marketplace earlier. Um, but the we've seen a lot of consolidation, so we can see that companies are emerging, uh, other companies are acquiring others to try to gain scale, gain capability, uh, and gain that global presence. Uh, vendors are trying to become that one-stop shop. Um, that, that's really, in many places, many situations, their end goal. Um, and leading corporates are willing to partner with our real estate companies uh, to, to get to that comprehensive service delivery model. We see that more and more, they're really looking for it. Um, so I think, you know, definitely leverage those opportunities. Um, so, given that sort of background around the marketplace, the, the, the history of, and the evolution of service delivery, um, wanted to get some insights from our panel today uh, on a couple of different topics, and certainly also invite the audience to ask questions uh, as well uh, at the same time. Um, so, we'll put this out um, as a sort of a first question um, to, uh, to Noah. Um, what do you see as the key changes uh, to the market for real estate uh, outsourcing service delivery over the last three to five years? How has the marketplace changed in your perspective? Well, as I listened to your presentation, I thought of the changes in my, my own uh, daily tasks over the past six months, uh, which is to say in, in March of this year, Grubb went through a rather dramatic reorganization. It may not have been apparent from the outside shifting from having a, a specialized team focused on coordinating the delivery of services, especially transaction services, uh, to national client relationships, to instead creating a, a network of training, of communication, of marketing materials, and especially of compensation models so that uh, engagements would be led by local contacts and by local delivery models. Uh, that's one side of it. And a second piece of it is that the proposal teams on which I find myself participating for master-client relationships have a lot more disciplines represented. We get Either we're getting RFPs or we're getting permission to show off a lot more pieces of our organization, management services, project management, strategy development, as well as real estate brokerage. Great. Christian? Um, I echo what Noah says. It's, you know, a couple of years back when we get these RFPs, it was generally for one piece which you were considered the expert in. Um, now what we're getting is our clients are asking us to be advisors and bring everything to the table. I'm actually seeing a lot more um, sole sourcing, believe it or not, because the, these, you know, end users are getting leaner and leaner, and then they get these mandates to say cut 8% of your cost or 10% or whatever that may be and do it with less staff. So, you know, when you're trying to deliver something, uh, I actually said this when we started here today, we were trying to deliver either a workplace strategy or a portfolio strategy or a project management, and to do that with one piece not understanding the whole and the holistic became a problem. And then also, in addition to that, you might be looking at the office side or the retail side, but there's a whole distribution side. There's the warehouse side and the logistic net. So what we've done and have been doing the last couple of years is putting a cross-functional team together by geographic industry um, that focuses on all of those components in addition to business process workflow as well as the box itself. And what does that mean? Um, you know, we're always asked to solve a problem. That, that's how I wound up on this side of the table. It's generally not we found a space or a real estate issue. Sometimes it's a labor issue, business process issue, and we were designing spaces and delivering portfolio solutions 
about a real estate issue. Generally, that's not the cause. It's a business issue. So when you understand that and actually how to put a strategy together, create the business case and how to deliver that, um, you're very successful. And we get a lot more opportunity to actually do that now. We, I felt, you know, you're rolling the stone uphill saying, look at us, look at us, we can do this. Um, now we have the opportunity to do that. Have you found that your, your clients are beginning to ask for services that you traditionally didn't offer, but they want you as their provider, potentially sole source provider, to provide them those services? Yes. Uh, one of the, the stranger things that's going on right now is uh, I liken it to the adoption of, of cell phones in a lot of third world countries. Uh, where we used to think of going there and being basically out of communication and we now go back to visit and discover they have communication networks <laughs> vastly superior to the ones we have in the United States by virtue of having been able to make a leap. The RFPs that we are getting now, actually what we're getting more of is RFQs. We're getting approaches from corporations saying, would you please come in and tell us all of the things that you can do and how they work together and educate us in crafting a way to put together what it is we want. Uh, sometimes we're writing the RFPs for them and sometimes we're helping coach the procurement function in figuring out what to ask for. But they're getting much broader in how they approach us. Um, similar, but what I noticed that I think goes to the, the integrator role here mm -hmm. is that we get the questions on what services do you offer but then I think where sometimes they miss the boat in a little bit is how do you put it together? Who's managing the program? Because that becomes our biggest challenge and, and our biggest upsell is, okay, we can deliver all these services, which, which we do have, you know, any, you know, any from end to end strategy to implementation, we have it all. But putting it together and managing, that's more of a problem because it's a book of business and it's a book of initiatives that when you do one in one region or it's regionalized or one siloed from portfolio from project management to transactions, again, without the integrator role and understanding the demand and the supply and all the infrastructure that goes with that, that's where it falls down. So what we are doing now is, is communicating that that piece is as relevant as all the different service lines. It's how that works together. And do you have the infrastructure to do that? Do you have the buy-in from your own people to do that? Are you culturally ready to do that? Um, I've been involved in RFPs before where we've given that response and then after we've delivered and said this is what we're going to do, they say, wait a minute, we can't do that. We're not ready. So you, you start much smaller and, and build back. Okay. Um, have any of your clients begun to move towards a more integrated infrastructure uh, delivery model? So where they're beginning to combine components of IT, HR, and real estate together? Very much so. Um, I don't know any of any of our clients, especially if they're large enough in corporate America that at least don't have the interest. They all have been talking about it for quite some time. Um, you know, mid-sized companies, maybe not as much, but the larger corporations, absolutely. The challenge they have is they ha they're so large and they have so many layers to undo some right. of their processes is more the challenge, right. but the interest is there. And, and my, my clients are not so formal in their description of this process but it becomes more and more common to run into somebody who is not a real estate person running real estate alongside IT mm -hmm. and on occasion HR. Uh, if uh, asked frankly, he'll describe his, his job as, I'm in charge of all the stuff that people need to do the real work around here. And they bunch it all together and put that responsibility together at a very high level person who is not a real estate person, who runs a, a very lean real estate function internally. Uh, it's interesting. We, it's one of, one of the questions that we always ask at uh, Acquiring Executive Development Program courses um, at the beginning of every course is how many of your real estate, how many people here have a real estate organization that doesn't, rep that reports into, um, you know, the, the lead is not a real estate person. Um, and more and more we're seeing a third to a half on average uh, of the senior executives are not real estate people. They come over from finance. HR, um, so and a lot of companies are putting people in a rotation program because they actually yes. want somebody, an executive, to understand the complexities and the issues around property, uh, managing a global portfolio and delivering workplace on a global scale. Um, so it's a rotation program now. Uh, so it's definitely something we're, we're, we're seeing more and more. Um, with regards to the earlier uh, questions around um, drivers for outsourcing, 
what are you seeing as the key drivers for outsourcing from your perspective uh, these days? Noah? Uh, to a, a certain extent, pressure from Sarbanes-Oxley is driving it because it creates a big administrative uh, burden on a function that historically has some of the worst information quality to be found anywhere in a corporation. And the prospect of creating Sarbanes-Oxley compliance inside an existing uh, small real estate organization, especially after a bunch of mergers perhaps where all the data's gone, uh, is something that will lead people to consider outsourcing. Um, in general, throughout my career in real estate, I've, it's been a story of concepts that were easily applied in some other aspect of a corporation's operations, finally getting accepted enough to be applied to real estate. Uh, good financial analysis, present value analysis, and uh, today, uh, active portfolio management, the way you would monitor your real estate assets, uh, finally beginning to catch up to the way you would monitor uh, the performance of a, a printing press or a salesperson. Uh, those are leading them to, to go outside and try and get the whole package at once. I, I think there's two reasons. I think the, the answer most relevant on, the, on paper is speed and flexibility, and it's somebody's not their core competency. So, you know, you're asked to, okay, if we're not going to focus on real estate, you know, we should focus our time on our core business, and a service provider who does this for a living could probably do it better, so let's do the analysis and see what we can outsource. But the reality of what I think I've seen more in an application is um, you have a lot of people doing tactical things that say they want to do something strategically, know they should be thinking strategically. Uh, they just don't have the time or the staff to do it. So, you know, my personal experience on large accounts is that somebody didn't raise their hand and say, mm -hmm. let's go outsource this. It became you happen to be at the table providing something in some level of service. They trusted you. They, they knew your value. And suddenly there was a fire drill. They had to do something very large and strategic and make decisions within a three-month period or whatever that may be, and then implement it. Um, and because you had been there with yeah. them at their side, that's when the decision was made to outsource. I Very rarely is it the RFP for the sole source provider and outsource. They're out there, but I think they're far and few in between what happens in reality. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned uh, speed, flexibility, as on paper at least, um, some of the key drivers. Um, and that was one of the things we talked about earlier. Do you see, in those situations, do you see uh, the performance of the contract and, the, and the, uh, the team being measured in alignment with those drivers, or does it come down to something else? Again, on paper, I think that's what it's always said that it's about. Um, you know, it's hard to measure. This is one of the things we just recently engaged with a client on. Okay, so you did a great job, people are happy, and we think we were successful, but how do you measure that? So the new, the new thing lately is how do you actually measure success? Um, mm -hmm. You know, part of what Newmark does is to say anything that you can, um, any output is measurable. You have to define what the output is, and then how do you measure backwards? Well, the question is, how do you measure the input? So you need to determine what you're doing, and did you actually change anything or affect anything, or is everyone just happy with the product at the end? Um, so it's a little bit of an a, a ambiguous situation because typically we're measured by cost. That's not the only driver. It's top line revenue. It's um, bottom line. So when you start to get into the quantitative relative to the qualitative, it's a little dicier. So you have to really measure what was the input and what were you trying to achieve. So it's not just a cost issue because it's not just expense reduction and cost cutting, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you have attrition and rec you know, recruitment issues. Or if you're trying to grow your revenue and, for example, you're a law firm, you're maybe less concerned with cutting space and cost. You're, you're trying to grow your revenue and get your you know, associates to stay with you. So it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag, and I think it really depends on the client and being very specific about setting up your metrics and your inputs and outputs. Okay. No, any comments? Uh, well, I see a couple of challenges <coughs> with metrics, and the first is double counting because uh, I really believe most of our clients are not in the real estate business, and yet they, they say they're only... Uh, three things that can affect an employee's uh, productivity, what you give them to do, what you pay them, and where you put them. So given that, most of the effect that can be achieved with, with a workplace transformation and with a selection of an appropriate location shows up in things other than real estate cost. It shows up in product quality. It shows up in cycle time. It shows up in a lot of areas. 
all of which are being claimed by other departments in the company that are under pressure to demonstrate results, uh, which, which makes it hard to make those claims. But the second thing is that often the reason a company will outsource, one we didn't mention before, <coughs> is that there was some sort of precipitating event that made them aware they weren't doing it particularly well themselves. Uh, in the case of one client, it was a series of newspaper articles about its inability to figure out whether it owned something or not. Now, uh, it's hard to make the argument that we'd like to show you a benchmark that shows how many mistakes you always made in the past and aren't making now. They don't want them brought up. Right. Uh, and they don't want them hauled out. Uh, they hope that many people aren't aware that they were their mistakes in the first place. So those benchmarks are very tough to come up with. Okay. All right. Talk a little bit, a little bit on the side of the uh, incentive side of things. Um, one of the concepts that's been brought up a lot recently is the is uh, appropriate sharing of risk and reward um, in these major contracts because these can be large contracts, multi-year, you know, five, ten-year contracts in the end. Um, is there an appropriate sharing of risk and reward in the way these contracts are being set up today, from your perspective? They have historically, um, I've seen two sides of that coin. Okay. And, the, and the first side is yes, there is a lot of risk and reward sharing and it's very easy to say, especially in the world that you, I used to live in, the workplace strategy and innovation and portfolio occupancy. You know, if you find us 10% savings, you know, what does that mean? So it's incentive. However, you know, recently I've had a couple clients, large global clients say to us, uh, that's your job anyhow. Um, why should you know we incent you? Shouldn't you be being, bringing your best to the table anyhow? And shouldn't you be doing this for us? So um, it kind of shocked me a little when I heard that. But if you're going for uh, account-based relationships and long-term relationships, the expectation is going to be that you're doing that anyhow. Um, yes, large one-offs where it's a, a, an initiative where you have to bring in extra resources and, you, and you're developing you know, a pilot project or a business case. I see it more often there. I don't see it as much... Oh, and I see the, the end users reacting a little bit more negatively to that when you already own the account and it's an you know, ongoing relationship because they view that as your job. So that there shouldn't be any special performance incentives for bringing that extra value to the table? Well, what happens is, okay, let's say this is the, an actual real situation. Um, let's say you've already set that up and you've worked with this okay. client for a handful of years. Do you continue to go to them annually and say, by the way, we found more and we found more and we found more and give us this money back? eventually they're going to say that's what we're paying you to do anyhow and that that's a very real example that did happen okay. so um large one-off projects where it's something that's outside of your mm -hmm. scope or if you're analyzing um you know re-engineering a business process that has to do with an impact space we see more incentive for that but not okay. just doing your day-to-day -day managing a portfolio and occupancy or a workplace no as procurement makes its way into the the corporate real estate uh, procurement function, uh, we're seeing mechanisms brought in from elsewhere, and one of them is they'll, they'll use uh, competing bids to educate them on how to price the thing. Uh, we did a one-off transaction mm -hmm. recently in which when we finally negotiated it, the commission thresholds were defined by our ability to achieve incentives over a certain threshold, to get rents below a certain threshold, and all of this was based <coughs> out of the the market data they had gathered in the course of having five firms in to pitch the work. Uh, that said, sometimes they try to apply a single mechanism to very different, uh, very different functions. And we, we're spending a lot more time in our contract negotiations discussing alignment of motivation. Uh, for example, uh, transaction professionals, brokers, are by nature risk tolerant. Uh, it's it's uh, part of the, the business, and uh, there is always the risk that nothing will happen after a tremendous amount of effort or that you'll get paid a lot after a tremendous amount or a small amount of effort. So we spend a lot more time talking about how much money will make its way to the person who actually executes, for example, a small deal in a secondary market. Uh, many firms will compete on the giant downtown deal with multi-million dollar commission, but in finding a 20,000-foot facility um, outside of Omaha, uh, that can often waste a lot more of an internal corporate real estate professional's time, just getting somebody to pay attention to it. So we talk about that a lot. 
However, when they try to apply the same logic to facilities management, which is essentially the management of a bunch of subcontracts with a very thin margin, we're now spending a lot more time showing exactly how the economics of that relationship work and discussing those parts that we can make change and, and where we can make a difference and trying to yeah. achieve a participation in that. Okay, very good. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, challenges with some of these large outsourcing contracts. Um, as service providers, um, what are some of the key things that you see uh, two to three months into one of these big deals? What are some of the key concerns or, or problems, if we would say, um, that, that come up? Christine? Data, technology, and culture. Um, it, you know, it doesn't get any simpler than that. It, and it's, it's not a three-month transition. It's more like a year. Okay. Um, whatever, whenever you take over anything, especially when you're sole, if you go source source and you pick up more than one functional piece, the integration of your culture and their culture and the prior service provider um, and then getting your hands on the information with which to do anything mm -hmm. is, is the largest challenge. And then understanding what systems are in place, how to get the information to do what you need it to do. Uh, that's the second largest challenge. And then thirdly, you've been tasked to make a difference, to make an impact, to do something. Otherwise, why would they have switched right. providers? And now you've got your culture that's different from the old service provider versus the old culture you're not familiar with internally. Um, I would say those three in conjunction because generally a lot of these problems aren't that complicated. You can kind of see the answer. It's just how do you get buy-in? How do you get buy-in and how do you get the right information and how do you manage it? Um, Noah? Beautifully said. Um, often in the proposal process, uh, it, it's not polite to say when a client says we have all the information you need and it's in marvelous shape <laughs> and a great database, it's not polite in a uh, proposal setting to say no you don't. <laughs> Uh, but uh, at about the three-month point is when you're undergoing the education process with the client to say, if you had your lease administration data populated by a bunch of field employees who had only worked there for three months, we're going to need to redo all of it uh, so that we can do meaningful analysis. Also, if there was a precipitating event that led a company to decide to outsource, it's often a great big deal, right? a huge transaction. Uh, Part of the logic is we've got something juicy enough to get firms to bring all their best and promise us everything because we have this big move we're going to do. The downside to that is they're usually asking for the establishment of good data to do workplace strategy, overall portfolio strategy, but they want the big transaction done first because they're in an awfully big hurry. You know, the big transaction on which it is more important than anything else they will do that they apply good strategy. So there's a lot of redundant effort at that point. And the last thing is making sure they do a good job of letting know those people whose function is about to be outsourced uh, that they really should take their time and consider their new prospective employer before uh, leaving. Uh, because arriving after a company has essentially had a lobotomy in a lot of its functions uh, can be pretty tough if you're trying to figure out what's going on. So um, for the end users out there, uh, have any of you implemented a large-scale outsourcing of uh, real estate services? Or would you like to? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I can tell you your data's not accurate. <laughs> any, any, uh, anybody who would volunteer thoughts on um, some of the challenges that they experienced? Nobody's outsourced their real estate department. At all. Okay. Well, then we'll go to some data. How's that sound? Um, so, uh, just some just some background. Um, and this is a, a, a uh, survey that was done across industry and across functions. So, and, and I think it's relevant and it, it's interesting because it shows that. Um, you know, real estate from a, a uh, administrative services standpoint, while it is different in some respects, um, some things are not that different, uh, especially when it comes to some of these large outsourcing uh, arrangements. Um, uh, and this is a survey of about 300 global companies 
um, across Canada, US, UK, and Germany. Um, and about 60% of the respondents um, experienced what they termed as financial surprises or problems. And surprise, surprise, the, the core issue here was data. Um, so a data in this case around a cost baseline. So an effective cost baseline was not established before the outsourcing occurred. So a total cost of ownership exercise um, was not executed and nobody really knew what it would cost to deliver the services uh, in the different environments. And it becomes a really big problem. I mean, it's not uncommon for for a very large, you know, Fortune 500 company to, to say that you know they're spending X on real estate facilities, and when they finish a, a TCO exercise, they find out they're spending two or three X, because the costs weren't centralized, uh, especially around things like facilities, and projects. They may have been decentralized to all the businesses. Um, so this is a really, it's a, I mean, I think it's an interesting snapshot there because it leads to underestimation of scope. Um, you know, a uh, challenge around implementation costs and then f of the actual transaction, uh, outsourcing transaction, and then post-implementation costs change too. Um, so it becomes certainly a, a, a big challenge. Um, other problems here, uh, non-financial problems, uh, around quality, uh, the transition itself, uh, and staffing. Um, you'll see that uh, staffing issues and quality of support and delivery were identified by at least 50% of the respondents as, um, as dissatisfaction points. Um, other things, much less so, around expertise or, or reliability. Uh, the real key issues are around staffing and, and quality of support. Um, so again, to some of the uh, points brought up earlier. Um, communication and relationship management, uh, also significant problems that occurred. Um, Communications, it's always one of those things uh, you can't communicate, you cannot over communicate, especially in these situations. Um, any points from, the, from Christy or Noah around uh, the importance of communication in some of these uh, uh, outsourcing efforts? Uh, the first and foremost thing I think we find it's about setting clear expectations and, and understanding, uh, especially with um, when you have an account that's you know, a corporate account, and you're managing multiple things, there's certain things that are within contract and within scope and, and things that you are being paid to do, and then there's things that clearly fall outside of scope, and you can get quickly sucked into um, spinning your wheels, a lot of time and energy, um, and, you know, now nobody wins. So it's definitely setting the expectation and communicating what's within your scope and within contract and what's not. And then when it's not, being proactive about it and identifying ways to... Um, hold up that something may be a problem, how to solve it, and recommendations and alternatives on how to solve that and, and not just say, you know, write another check, giving them a couple different ways to solve that, either by themselves internally or by, you know, utilizing their outsource partner. And if you go back cool. to the, the pyramid you presented earlier, mm -hmm. you don't need to actually go back to it, but the little piece at the top where you said they should be spending 85% of their time because that will give you 85% of the benefit, namely setting strategy, uh, the benefits of that are not often shown at the point that's reflected in a survey like this. Uh, if you're going to work on, I spend a lot of time on portfolio strategy. Now, if you're going to recommend a set of new locations and consolidations for a multi-location company that's merged over time, the first opportunities to do anything about that advice may not come for two or three years, uh, which means it's not going to appear in the initial go-round, although it, it's not that hard to quantify the benefit. Our clients, though, are asking us more and more often to justify in financial terms why they should do things. Uh, and uh, we, we've established a process, we call it the REACT process, Real Estate Advisory Council, whereby we'll actually convene uh, a team that includes people who are not day-to-day -day on the engagement. Uh, I'm one of them. Uh, but others inside Grubb and Ellis will meet with people in the client who are not necessarily part of the real estate organization, meet periodically and, and realign that strategy, but also review a set of standard reports so they can see if they are getting what they asked for and if they need to redirect what they're emphasizing, just to keep that channel open. Good. Um, you know, one of the other issues you'll see highlighted here on general problems uh, is uh, technology. Um, and always a big decision when you're outsourcing 
you know, do you include technology as part of the contract? Or do you want to do want to handle that internally? Do you want to build, you know, establish your own program internally and have your service provider use your technology? Um, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer for companies. It, you know, sometimes it's best to go to the external provider for the technology because either you can't fund it internally or it's, it's your best option uh, or it is the optimal solution for your company or in some cases, you know, because you're you know, a global 25 company and and you have the scale and you need to build your own, you know, your own program internally, um, you go that, down that route. But um, the expectations management around technology, uh, whether it's handled internally or externally, uh, is certainly a, a challenge. Um, <clears throat> I think, see, th this uh, interesting here on the, on the bottom piece here around um, vendors believing companies are not well prepared. Um, so again, part of this goes back to um, some of the data issues, uh, but also it's in the transition uh, from, in many cases, not having service levels established as part of your corporate real estate program and then going to a service provider relationship where everything is based on service levels and your service provider is delivering to those service levels and is being compensated on delivering to those service levels. It's a big change. Um, uh, in culture. Um, so, uh, any thoughts on that? Well, service level, agree or service level agreements have been a longstanding uh, piece of our uh, facility management practice. And as we get to um, integrated proposals where we're talking about multiple disciplines at the same time, of course, there is a part of the presentation and a part of the discussion devoted to SLAs, which means it's making its way into other areas. Uh, it's still only seldom uh, discussed in the transactions realm, except in the discussion of how we will communicate with clients, mm -hmm. how we will give them status reports, through what channels, uh, what pieces of, of software we will let them know what's going on. The ones who are dealing with lots of different locations are much more interested in it than the ones who are dealing with a handful of big deals that they can actually remember on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, yeah, and, and to that point, you know what, it's getting interesting, I think, in delivering these, these kind of services for the, ver the very reason if, if your methodology is tied to something tactical, this <coughs> is easier to do. When it's tied to something that's more rel relevant to strategy, mm -hmm. it becomes a little more interesting because um, to your question about the data and who provides it in, in the infrastructure and technology, well, if our methodology is to provide you a solution and we view, um, you know, Newmark Consulting views space and technology as an enabler or a constraint of how you do business, it becomes very hard to take the technology side and go, okay, <coughs> you're over here because then we can't do what we're supposed to do. So we have to tie it together. So the, the integrated piece of how we deliver services is, is part of our methodology in the DNA of how we do things. And, and we also tie it very closely with the transaction because that's where you really get into developing these solutions in the, in the strategy and it becomes less tactical and reactionary. All right, and I know that we're coming up on 1.30 here, so we need to, uh, we to, to pretty much wrap. Um, all right, well, thank you very much for uh, your time today. All right, thank you all very much. You have uh, evaluations on your table. Please fill those out. We watch those carefully for ideas and your feedback. Also, um, there's something else I need to talk about. Uh, don't forget the upcoming event in November. We've got a, a great panel for you there. And um, don't forget the speed networking. That's what I was supposed to say, October 22nd. Have a great day. Thanks, guys.